Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We're going through a purge at our house, not like the movie, uh, The Purge, though sometimes um, we feel like that. Uh, We're going through a purge of, of stuff old toys and, and clutter and stuff. We've been going through a, a purge of sorts here at the church with our, our work day last week and cleaning out some old closets. And, you know, Jessica and I, and as, as we cleaned up the church last week, we go through this old, unused stuff, sometimes rooms and closets full of unused stuff, and you begin to kind of beat yourself up for, for buying that stuff and keeping that stuff because no one's using it. It's been sitting there collecting dust for who knows how long. Last week, as we talked about the freedom of God... We've been talking about freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from hell. And we've talked about freedom from the law. We hear that phrase, free from the law, we might begin to think of the law in terms of some sort of purge, that it's junk, it's trash, it's clutter, it's garbage. If we're free from the law, why not just trash the whole thing? What good is the law if we're free from it? It's a complicated question for Christians. As we went from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the question remains for us, even today, what do we do with the law, the Ten Commandments, all the laws of the Old Covenant? What do we do with that? Are they all still intact today? Is all the law of Moses still binding for Christians today? Or is none of it binding for Christians today? Is it old? Is it obsolete? Remember these two big words I've taught you in the past couple weeks, and we'll keep on drilling this until we're out of this section in Romans. Is it antinomianism, which just means anti-law? So if we're free from the law, we don't need the law anymore. We don't, who cares about obedience? Who cares about good works? Who cares about righteousness? Those things aren't necessary because we have grace in the gospel, so the law doesn't matter. Anti-law, antinomianism. Or is it legalism? And as you can tell by the name, that means all law. The law does matter. It matters so much that you have to keep the law in order to be saved. That's legalism. Well, Paul's references admittedly to the law are often negative. We deal with freedom from the law, the condemnation of the law, the the death sentence that the law gives us. And so Paul often speaks of the law in that negative lens. We might be tempted to think then that the law is bad. And that we should avoid the law. Well, today I want you to see in Romans 7 how Paul views the law in its usefulness, in its goodness, and in its righteousness. How it convicts of sin and brings people to the gospel. How for us believers, the law is an agent of holiness and sanctification, pointing us so as to how to grow in our likeness of Jesus. And how for Paul, the law introduced to him as a believer this ongoing struggle and this war with remaining sin in our lives. And maybe you're here today 
and you would admit and confess like uh, Javon did in his testimony that I am a sinner and I will sin until the day I die. How are we to deal with that ongoing indwelling sin in our lives even as a believer? And Paul deals with that here in Romans 7, even using the law. Look at chapter 7 of Romans beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who are under the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have known, not known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become more sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not know, I do not do what I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Dealing with this issue of the law today, I want us to see number one today first that we are free from the law. In these opening verses, Paul uses two primary analogies to show us our relationship, our relationship to the law. And, and one of which is the end of a relationship. Namely, this marriage that he speaks of that has ended in the death of a husband. 
Paul says, yes, the law is 100%, verse 1, it is 100% binding, look at the end of verse 1, on a person only as long as he lives. The law is 100% absolutely always binding on a person if you live there. But the gospel says you don't live there anymore. And in verses 2 through 3, Paul uses this illustration of a marriage in which the husband has died. He says it's like a woman bound by the law to her husband, verse 2, while he lives. But when her husband dies, she's released from the marriage. And verse 3 says, look, if she went off to live with another man while she was still married and her husband was alive, she'd be an adulteress. But the fact that her husband has died and she goes to live with someone else and marries him, then she's not an adulteress. She's free from the obligation of that marriage because the spouse has died. Now, Paul says this is like our relationship to the law. But Paul says in verse 4, it's actually uh, kicked up a notch. In verse 4, look what it says. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You see the switch in the analogy he made? He said, it's like a wife who has a husband who dies. She's now free. And Paul says, you know, come to think of it, it's not the law that has died, but it is you that have died to the law. He makes the example even stronger. It's not just the spouse that has died in this story. It is you who have died. You're the one who died to the law. Remember the verdict that Paul issued by the Lord. Romans chapter 3. Verses 10 through 12. I'm just going to read it to you. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. The end of verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's your verdict. You are guilty. What is the sentence for that verdict? Chapter 1, verse 32. All who do these things deserve to die. Okay, so the verdict has been issued, the sentence has been issued, guilty, and the curse and the sentence of that verdict is death. And so Paul says here in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, you have died. And you say, well, wait a minute, I'm still physically alive. How did I die? It's a curious thing, isn't it? It's what we viewed here all morning. Back in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul tells us how we died. You have died with Christ. You have been buried with Christ in a death like his. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you have died with him. And that's what baptism shows us. Even more curious is that even though you have died with Christ by faith in him, you have also been raised with Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. You've been buried with him, as Zane said, and Paul says here in Romans 3 or 6, and you've been raised to walk in new life in Christ. You have already died, and you have already been raised from that death. How? By faith in Christ. And Paul says that death you died was a death to sin, it was a death to hell, it was a death to death itself, but it was also a death to the law. You are free from the obligations and the commandments, Paul says, the handwriting and ordinances of the law. Why? Because you have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ and his life is yours. You once belonged to the law. 
You once belonged to that condemnation and that verdict. But Paul says says here in verse 4, you now belong to another. Through faith in Christ, you've died to the law. The obligations have passed away, as did that spouse from the dead spouse. You are free. Legalism comes in and says, no, 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 no. You have to be saved by the law. Legalism says, where's your checklist? Where's your bullet points? Where's the do's? Where's the don'ts? Have you done all the things to make sure you're right with God? Have you checked all the boxes to make sure you're saved? Done this, 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 and don't do this, this, and this. Have you not said this, and have you said this? That's legalism. And Paul says to those in legalism here this morning, be free from legalism. Now, on the other side of that, remember, there's antinomianism, anti-law. And these are the folks that come and say, oh, well, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You said the prayer, you did the thing, you got baptized, so what you do doesn't matter anymore. Sure, you could technically go on sinning and sinning habitually and terribly for the rest of your life, and it doesn't make any difference in your salvation because you did the thing, you checked the box, grace through faith alone. No, that is antinomianism, and it's just as dangerous as legalism. Paul says, you have not been freed from the law to do as you please. You have been freed from the law to, verse 4, belong to another. And look what it means to be, belong to Jesus. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. You are dead to the law through faith in Christ. But it is not a freedom to sin. It is a death and a resurrection and a new freedom with a new heart to now serve Jesus, your new husband, your new master, and to bear fruit for him. It's it's funny that from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God said, Adam, Eve, go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. Now, he was talking about physical procreation and taking dominion over all creation. We know that didn't last very long. They fell into sin. What's interesting then, now that Paul uses that same analogy, you are no longer an Adam, you are in the new Adam, Jesus. You're no longer married to that man, you're married to Jesus. You're no longer serving that man, you're serving Jesus. But the commission is the same. Go, be fruitful in Christ, and multiply disciples for Jesus. Go bear fruit for the gospel in holiness, sanctification, And Paul does a shift in the analogy here again in verses 5 through 6. Verse 5, while we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died of that which held us captive. We have a switch from marriage to slavery. Who are you married to was the first question, the law or Christ, and now it's who do you serve? Do you serve, as Paul says in verse 5, your sinful passions? And what is the fruit of that? He says, death. Or do you serve, as he says at the end of verse 6, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code? Do you serve the law and your sin, or are you serving Christ by the Spirit? When you were in your sin, apart from Christ, when you were not a believer, you were held captive to what Paul calls here in verse 6, the written code. Your version might say the letter of the law. 
What is the letter of the law? It's taking the law at face value. If you do good, you will live. If you do evil, you will die. Now, you've been with us long enough to know what you've done. What we've all done is not good so as to live, but we've all sinned so as to die. And so Paul says, if you want to live by the letter of the law in that way, then you have to deal with the consequences of the law in that way. You say, well, I'm going to attain my righteousness by obedience to the law. Paul says, good luck. All it will get you is more death. But thankfully, Paul says here at the end of verse 6, there's a new way. It's a new way by the Spirit. By the Spirit. And you say, well, I don't really see the difference. Obeying the law in legalism, trying to please God that way, or obeying the law by the Spirit, and this brings life. What, what's the difference here? The difference is what we talked about in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. You remember this? Now that you're in Christ, you have obedience. What does it say? From the heart. Because of your faith in Christ, you're a new creation. You have new life. You have the Holy Spirit. And so you are not spinning your wheels as a sinner trying to please God by obeying the law. But having been set free from the law through faith in Christ, declared righteous by faith in him alone, now you can obey. Not as to please God with your obedience, but from the heart as a new creation in Jesus Christ. To summarize, Paul says we are free from the law as a spouse is from a dead spouse. We are free from the law as slaves who have been liberated. But we have been freed, verse 4, to belong to another. There's a new marriage. There's a new arrangement. And so you might look at the law and you say, well, Paul, if the law is a death spouse, or the law is an old taskmaster, Doesn't that make it bad or evil or or the very least useless and obsolete? If those things are true, and if we're free from the law, can't we just forget it? Can't we just abandon it? I want to tell you this morning to watch out for false teachers who cloak heresy or false teaching in this kind of language. And they use phrases like free from the law or dead to the law to teach that very false teaching of antinomianism. To say that you as a Christian don't have to obey anything. That you as a Christian, your works don't matter. That your righteousness doesn't matter. That your holiness doesn't matter. Watch out for those false teachers. One of which, a very popular Christian preacher and teacher, Andy Stanley, recently said in the past four or five years that Christians should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And his reasoning in saying this was that unbelievers hate the Old Testament. Unbelievers don't like the Old Testament. They don't understand it. Few Christians understand the Old Testament. And so Andy Stanley says, why not just get rid of the Old Testament altogether? Unhitch the gospel from the law, from the Old Testament. And Paul says, this is false teaching. You cannot unhitch the new covenant from the old covenant. We must understand the new covenant in light of the old covenant. There is no good news of the gospel 
without the bad news of the law. And if it was not the bad news of the law coming to us, we would not understand our need of the good news in the gospel. We cannot unhitch ourselves from the old covenant. We cannot unhitch ourselves from the law. And so you might be wondering, well, what does that look like? What do we do with it then? We're free from it. It's a dead spouse. It's an old taskmaster. What do we do with it? Number two today, what good then is the law? Well, I want verse 12, if I can start there. I want verse 12 to anchor us here. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. And we come to that verse, and you might look at that this morning and scratch your head and say, how does that fit with all the other stuff? How does that fit with the image of a dead spouse or an old taskmaster? How does that fit with something we've been freed from, holy and righteous and good? And you might ask, as did these people in verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? And what has become characteristic of Paul in Romans so far, by no means. Now, when Brother Matt was preaching and he came to that word, he told you the, the fine Greek word for that, meganoita, which means no, by no means, not at all. I think I, I, I took that down a notch and I said, um, in my vernacular, meganoita Greek, it means mega no, no. When Bart Barber was here with us last Saturday, he took it down even one more notch. And he said, what Paul means when he says by no means, what he means is to say, what are you, stupid? (laughs) You like that one? Maybe I should talk like that. Paul says, is the law sin? Mega no. Are you stupid? Have you missed the point? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, verse 7, I would not have known sin. What good is the law? Well, Paul says, without the law, I would not have known my sin. Now, here's the thing. Paul has already labored the point that we are without excuse, even apart from the law. Chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, because of creation, our consciences, the image of God within us as human beings, even if we did not know the law, we're guilty. You have no excuse, he says. He, sa- he comes back in chapter 2, verse 1, and he says the same thing. You have no excuse. So it's not as though the law makes one guilty. We are guilty by our very nature as sinful human beings. But what it does do is it reveals where our ignorance comes from. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. It's not as though the information isn't there. It is that by our sin and our sinful natures, we stifle it and suppress it. The law comes in then to correctly label and identify for us what we have been trying to suppress and stifle. Verse 8, though, takes it a step further. It doesn't just come in to identify and label sin. Look at what verse 8 says. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now this is curious, isn't it? The law, the holy, righteous, and good law of God, 
provokes sin. And so we might look at that and ask, well, so, so the law is to blame for my sin. And Paul says, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin, and my sin wouldn't have been provoked. And so we look at that and we say, so is it the law's fault that we sin? Would we be counted as sinners apart from the law? Is it the law's fault that we fall? One of the commentaries I read said it this way, Dan Doriani. He said, oftentimes, you shall not leads us to why not. Now, if you have children or have had children, as I currently do, I see this principle every single day. That you shall not very quickly leads to either a question, why not, or just a statement as they go on to do it, why not? You shall not leads to why not. That's what Paul is saying here. The law is good, holy, righteous. The law isn't the problem. The problem is our sin. In the law, God's holy and righteous requirements are made plain and clear. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. You shall. Plain, clear, easily understood through the law. Listen, and it's because God's law is plain and clear that our sinfulness is made plain and clear. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Paul says, I thought I was alive. I didn't know any better. I could claim ignorance. But the law came. It's like turning a light on in a room full of roaches. We don't have a lot of those here, but in Florida, it was like a nightly thing. I would go into the kitchen, and after being in bed for a while, turn on the light. There'd be one big gangster roach there on the countertop just tempting me with his, with his antenna. And then you try to go after them, and they just you know, scurry away into your silverware drawer, of all things, of course. And then you're washing everything anyway. It's like turning on a light in a room full of roaches. The law comes and flips on the light and makes everything plain, brings it to the light, shows it for what it is. And so Paul says here that by the law, sin can no longer be identified by you as just ignorant misdeeds. Well, I didn't know any better. Oh, I didn't know that. No, when the law comes... We move from ignorant misdeeds, listen, which is sin still, but we move from that to actual transgression and rebellion against the law of God. When the you shall not turns into, well, why not? And that makes the judgment and the wrath and the verdict and the sentence of God so clear. And Paul says in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. I think I corrected this on my sermon slides back there. Psalm 19, verse 7. Is that what we have? Yeah, Psalm 19, verse 7. Look at this promise of God in the law. Psalm 19, verse 7, that the law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of God is holy and righteous and good. What does the psalmist say? Giving life to the soul. But I've been laboring all morning to tell you that the law brings death. The law brings condemnation. The law issues the verdict of guilt. And you say, well, which is it, pastor? Does the law bring condemnation and death and sin? Or does it promise life? 
I want you to remember how many times in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, how many times the covenant blessings are linked to obedience. You know this. You just read through uh, the, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you see this, don't you? Do good, and you will live. Do bad, and you will face judgment. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, don't we? That is the substance of the Old Covenant. And the question for us is, how did that go? How did that go for Israel? How did that go for individuals in the Old Testament? Read the book of Judges much? Or the rest of the Old Testament? How does it go for you? How does it go for me? And you begin to see the problem. Yes, the commandment of God and the law of God promises life if it is obeyed. But you already know the problem, don't you? Romans chapter 3, verse 12, none is righteous. No one does good, not even one. And then comes the verdict, Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So do you see the problem? Is the problem the holy law of God? Or is the problem you? The Bible clearly says the problem is you. The law promises life. Obey me and live. But you ain't got it. And the sentence, verse 10, is death. Verse 11 shows us this this twisting that sin does with the law. Sin comes in. It sees an opportunity through the commandment and deceives and kills. And do you hear in that and do you see in that the ploy of the serpent? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment, didn't he? God said, don't eat of this tree or you will die. What does the serpent come and do? Using the commandment. Did God really say? Did God really? Do you really think that you'll die if you eat of this? Don't you want it, Eve? Doesn't it look good, Eve? So you see how the deceiver comes in using the very words of God as Satan did with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, using the very words of God to allure and to draw in only to trap and to kill. And I want you to notice the culprit again. The culprit is not the law, but it is Satan, the deceiver, through sin that kills Verse 12 reminds us here where we anchored ourselves in the beginning. So the law is holy. The commandment itself is holy and righteous and good. The problem isn't the law, Paul says. The problem is you. The problem is sinful humanity that can't obey the law. And verse 13 follows up with this question. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. What, are you stupid? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see what Paul says there? The commandment didn't make you sin. The law didn't bring you death. The law just simply shows where the problem is. And it is your sin and your wickedness that brings you into the condemnation of God. The law doesn't bring death. But it correctly identifies and exposes our sin. The law pulls the curtain back on our sin. 
And though we want to say, as the Wizard of Oz, uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The man behind the curtain is who you really are. And the law pulls back the curtain and says, sinner, guilty, death. We're freed from the condemnation and the obligations of the law. And so we might ask, what good is it? To get to the point of freedom in Christ, we have to understand the facts and understand where we are. And the law, which is good and righteous and holy, brings us there. It shows us that we are not good. It's not that the law is bad, but the law shows how bad you are. It's not that the law can save, but it shows you that you need saving. It's not adherence to a checklist of works trying to please God that brings salvation. But it is faith, listen, it is faith in the one who fulfilled the law for us. We died to sin. We have new life in him. How does one get to a knowledge of that need? If not for the law exposing our need. We sing it in the song, don't we? By God's word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. Till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. What good is the law? What exposes our sin and our guilt and it points us to Calvary. Where the execution of the law was given, Isaiah 53 verse 11, to one righteous man. So that many unrighteous men might go free. Lastly today, and I promise this last section will go quickly. I've grouped a lot of verses together. A tale of two laws. The rest of the chapter presents us with a seeming common uh, contradiction in the Christian life. We say, okay, the law exposes sin. The law points to Christ. It, it shows us the, the issue of our death and brings us to spiritual life. And we say, maybe that's good for unbelievers. Maybe the law and the preaching of the law is good for unbelievers. Unbelievers need to know that they're sinners. Unbelievers need to hear the bad news to understand the good news. But what about me? Say you're a Christian, you're a believer in the room today. You say, I don't need to be saved. I am saved. What does the law do for me? Maybe these last few weeks you've been hearing these themes of freedom and life and a new creation and a new heart in Christ. And you say, this is where I am. This is who I am in Christ. I am free. I'm forgiven. I'm justified. But believers, listen to me today. Believers, if you're honest, you know the problem of ongoing sin in your life. And I want you today to be comforted to see that same struggle in the apostle here. Now, some have taken verses 14 through 20 and said this is Paul's pre-conversion experience. That this is somehow speaking of an unbeliever. I just want to draw a few context clues to show you that's not what he's talking about. He is talking about himself as a believer. He doesn't shift from chapter 6 through chapter 7 through chapter 8 talking about believers and then suddenly talk about unbelievers. He's talking about someone who is saved. Also, it's important to note that unbelievers don't know this struggle. You understand this? Unbelievers don't struggle with sin. They just sin. 
Unbelievers don't deal with conviction and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in their life and the preaching of the word bringing them back to Jesus. Unbelievers don't deal with that struggle. So Paul here is talking about believers. It's what John Calvin called of this verse, these are the greatest weaknesses of the faithful. I want to go through this very quickly and show you the big point here. Verse 14, Paul says, the law is spiritual, but we're still in the flesh. In other words, the law is holy and righteous and good and reveals these commandments of God, but it also shows us who are believers. It also shows us that we are not completely glorified and set free from sin yet. Verse 15 shows us the struggle of believers who sin. You're a believer and you fall into sin or you fall back into an old temptation. Believers ask the question that Paul asks here in verse 15. Who is this? Do you find yourself, believer, lashing out in anger or bitterness or hatefulness or falling into some sort of lust or pride or whatever your besetting sin might be? And you take a step back and you look at yourself and you say, what am I doing? Who am I? Who is doing this? Paul says in verse 16, you're vindicating the law when that happens because you're showing that the commandment comes to reveal the sin. It exposes the sin. It exposes the sinful flesh and our lusts and our pride. In verse 17, we still deal with that though, don't we? I'm a new creation in Christ. I have a new heart. I have new freedom. Again, when I do the things I don't want to do, or I don't do the things I know I'm supposed to do, believers look at that and they repent and they lament about it and they say, that is not me. Verse 18 reveals this struggle, doesn't it? I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is the struggle of the believer. We fail to obey, listen believers, and we are very aware of our failures. Again, believers know this as an identity crisis. That when we sin or we mess up, we say, that's not me. Yes, we are a new creation. We have a new heart. We have a new freedom. We have a new spirit. The old self, though, the old self is still there. We have been freed from the condemnation of sin. Listen, but we are not yet free from the presence of sin. Should there be a difference in the life of a Christian before and after? Absolutely. We've been talking about that, haven't we? Can I just go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Can I just keep on doing what I want because of grace after all? Absolutely not. There will be a difference. This is not an excuse or a license to sin. Listen, it is an admission that we are not yet what we will be. It is not Christian perfectionism. But there definitely should be an upward trend. Will there be falls? Will there be failures? Will there be plateaus? 
Will there be dips? Will there be extensive dips in your Christian life? Absolutely. You can count on it. But there should be, over time, an upward trend in righteousness and sanctification and Christ-likeness. And part of that sanctification, listen, believers, part of that sanctification is the Spirit of God bringing an awareness of your sin by the preaching of the Word and the preaching of the law. Not that we give up in despair. Well, there's the law. I can't obey that. I've already failed in that. Might as well give up. No, you're not earning your righteousness by it. But you're learning to please God by a pleasing life. And Paul says that this lamentation over sin and this ongoing repentance over sin is a mark of a believer that not only acknowledges sin, but laments over it and wages war against it. Christian, here's the question for you today. The question isn't, are you sinless yet? But the question for you is, are you constantly aware of your sin? Are you constantly then grateful for grace? And do you know this war in your inner being? Do you know, believer, this hatred for indwelling sin, this hatred for indwelling temptation? And do you know this desire to be holy? Not as a way to earn grace or to live up to grace, but as a way of living by grace. Believer, the law comes to you then, no longer as a taskmaster and a judge, but as a guide. Believer, the law to you might be the flipping on of the switch that shows all the filth and shows all the roaches. The gospel then comes in with the fly swatter or the can of bug spray, and then you begin to, with the law and the gospel, go to war with sin in your life. The question for you, believer, today is not, is there sin in your life? There is. Are you fighting that sin? Do you know this war? It's not a matter of perfectionism right here and right now, but do you know your sin and are you fighting against sin? Maybe you're here today with ongoing indwelling sin. Maybe you've made excuses for it. Maybe you've settled on in there. You're not at war against it. Maybe you're presuming on God's grace based on some decision you made way long time ago, but there's been no difference, no upward trend, no fruit since then. I want to tell you this morning, you're not in the war against sin because you are not enlisted. Believers know their sin, and they're not content to let the sin settle in the land. Believers know their sin, and they set out to kill every last bit of it. And the question is, is that you? It might seem long and arduous and taxing. It's war. It is. But there's good news. I want you to notice today in verse 21, these two eyes. Look at verses 21 through 23. I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. A couple eyes here, a couple laws here, and this comes from John Stott. It's not original to me, but I love this. We see here two eyes. You see what Paul says? I want to do right, but I also sin. 
You see that, believers? Two eyes. Do you know those eyes in your life? I want to do right, but I sin. We see two laws. There's the law of God that I want to obey, but then there's the law of sin, which I so often succumb to. And I could hear the words of Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, and so we are engaged in a great civil war. The two eyes, the two laws at war within us, a great war between two egos and two laws, and we say, who will win? Sometimes, Christians, the war seems long, it seems hard, it seems brutal, and there's carnage everywhere, and you, believer, tempted into sin, falling into sin, might be tempted to despair, to give in, to give up, to surrender, or maybe even to fall on your own sword. You are doing war with yourself, after all. But I want you to notice two more things here at the end of this chapter. To Christ. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's a cry for deliverance there, isn't there? A cry for deliverance. Do you know that cry, believer? Who will save me? Oh, I'm just telling you, as your pastor today, I resonate with this cry. Sinner that I am, wishing it to be done, wishing to be home with Jesus, to be free from the presence of sin, to be perfect and holy in his presence, to know the fullness of sanctification in my glorification, to know the wholeness in him in heaven. I long for that. Christians long for that. And so we say, who will save me? Who will deliver me? Is there any hope? And verse 25 tells us where our hope is. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can anyone save you from your sin? Yes, Jesus can. Deeper still, Jesus has, believers. Even better, believers. Jesus will This is the great consolation in all of our sorrow over sin that God sent us a Savior. Oh, how I resonate with Martin Luther when he said, when Satan comes to throw your sin in your face, you say, yeah, Satan, I'm a sinner, what of it? For I know one who made satisfaction in my behalf, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, There I will be also. Jesus has won the victory. Jesus has won the war. We know the battle for now. We're engaged in the battle now. But we will know victory one day. 1 John 3, 2. Now we are the children of God. But what we will be, we do not yet know. John says, I know this, though. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. What a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. When we see him, when he sees us in that moment, free from the presence of And the power of sin forever. Until then, here's the battle. The last part of verse 25. 
I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the battle. This is to war. This is the war. And what is there for us to do, believers? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And long for the day when we see him. And by seeing him, we will be made like him. Thank you, our God and Father, for your word, for the law, for the gospel, which reveals to us our sin and points us to our Savior. And so, God, today, if there are unbelievers here, I ask that you would draw them to saving faith in Jesus, that you would use the preaching of this law today to reveal their sin, to reveal their guilt, but not to leave them there, but to point them to Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf, who lived a sinless life, who died to pay the payment of our sin under the law, and who rose again so that we might have new life free from the law, free from condemnation, filled with the Holy Spirit to bear fruit for you. And God, for believers in the room today, I ask that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, by the preaching of this word, by your gospel, by your truth, that we might take up our sword and our shield, the whole armor of God, and do war with Satan for ourselves, for our marriages, for our children, for our family, for our church, for our community. Help us to rid ourselves of the laziness and the apathy towards sin in our lives. And let's do holy war by your word. God, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Give us power by your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and receive your benediction now? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. That's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.